Let's go to Genesis chapter 14. It's been a couple weeks since we've studied in the book of Genesis together. I need to remind you of where we are at contextually. Long story short, Abram and Lot have parted ways. There was strife in the camp among their herdsmen in chapter 13. Lot chose to move toward Sodom, and eventually he moved into the city. Without getting into all the details, it came to pass, war broke out, and Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated. Their enemies spoiled them. They were taken captive. That included Lot. Well, word comes to Abram that Lot has been taken captive. He was Abram's nephew. So Abram arms his 318 trained servants, and he goes along with Mamre, Eskel, and, and Aner, and their men, and they go to rescue the captives. And that was the message last time, rescue the captives. They defeated the confederated kings of Kedor Laomer, and they brought back all the people and all of their possessions. And this brings us to where we left off. That's a terrible recap, amen. If you missed last time, please go back and listen. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and it'll be worth your time. Genesis chapter 14, let's read verses 17 through 24. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedor Laomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. The king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which were with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Amen. So we find Abram is here visited by some kings after he rescued Lot and the people with their possessions. In verse 17, we read of the king of Sodom and the kings with him. And then in verse 18, we read of Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And then we get Abram's interaction with these two kings, Though the king of Sodom is here mentioned first, the interaction with Melchizedek comes first, then the interaction with the king of Sodom. And so we're going to start with the interaction between Abram and Melchizedek. For some reason, the Lord currently has our church dealing with controversial subjects in all three of our services right now. <laughs> we're going through why we use the King James on Sunday night. To me, that's not really controversial, but maybe for some. For sure, Wednesday night's about to hit the... <laughs> as we're at the latter part of Daniel 9. And now we're confronted with this man named Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek who appears on the pages of Scripture out of nowhere? When we consider what is written about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews, the question arises as to whether or not this Old Testament appearance of Melchizedek is a Christophany, which is a fancy way to say the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, I think for most of us, this is a non-issue. 
Because honestly, your opinion doesn't change anything as far as the narrative goes. But for some, well, not necessarily here, but there are those who for some reason just enjoy taking issues and making them major issues of debate. In fact, when I had attended this, this church years before I ever became the pastor, there was a young man here who actually left our church over Pastor Williams' opinion on who Melchizedek was. Now, for those of you who sat under Pastor Williams' teaching, you know how it's almost humorous to think of some young whippersnapper trying to convince Pastor Williams that he was wrong in the Scriptures. Thankfully, he later called preacher and he asked for his forgiveness. But it illustrates how divisive some will become over certain, over certain portions of the Scripture, which essentially have, it changes no bearing on anything. If you think it's an earthly king, if you think it's Christ, it really doesn't change what's taking place here. Therefore, I contemplated how in-depth should I go in talking about this man, Melchizedek. Because after all, we're in Genesis, not Hebrews. And if you ask me what I thought, who I think Melchizedek is out of the book of Genesis, I would tell you he was the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. (laughs) And we could leave it at that, but this isn't the only mention of Melchizedek. I began to think, well, I suppose you pay me to study for a reason. If I do nothing but avoid controversial subjects, perhaps you'll think it's because I lack the ability to study. So, here we go. I'm going to give you my opinion on the identity of Melchizedek. Remember, it is only my opinion, and it doesn't matter to me if you agree. That's a polite way of saying don't come up and try to convince me that I'm wrong. I don't care if you're right and I'm wrong. So Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Once here in Genesis 14 and then again in Psalm 110. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 and verse 4 of Psalm 110. Listen to what it says. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, there's no doubting that Psalm 110 is clearly foretelling of the Messiah. Everybody agrees with that. And it tells us that Christ would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this fact alone does make Melchizedek an important person to study because he is related to a description of our Lord. And so I do think this is valuable Um, I just don't think it's worth being divisive. In addition to these two Old Testament passages about... Is it okay if we do a Bible study at first? Just say yes and act like you... In addition to these two Old Testament passages about Melchizedek, uh, there are nine New Testament references to this man, all within the book of Hebrews. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. Let's go there, amen? Let's get in the weeds a little bit. And you're going to go, man, I don't agree with you, but that guy sure does study. (laughs) Much learning doth make thee mad. (laughs) The first mention of Melchizedek is here in the New Testament, 
is in Hebrews 5, 6, and it's quoting Psalm 110 and verse 4 after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's mentioned again in chapter 5 and verse 10, chapter 6 and verse 20, and it's just mentioning the same thing. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But none of those verses will expound upon who Melchizedek was. However, chapter 7 does. And so if you'll look in chapter 7, let's look at verses 1 through 4. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, for being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. So in verse 1, we're told what we already know from Genesis 14, 8, that he is the king of Salem and that he's the priest of the Most High God. And then in verse 2, we get the meaning of Melchizedek, which is the king of righteousness, and we get the meaning of Salem, which is the king of peace. Verse 3 is the main cause of all the debate, right? And understandably so. Look at what verse 3 says again. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now to understand what is being said here, we have to understand the context. Right? Context is everything. We've got to understand what it is, is that we're leading up to here. And so you have to back up to chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. But you can glance over if you want. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And then Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 4. It says, In no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. And then in chapter 5, it goes on to talk about how Christ is our high priest by God's appointment. And in verse 10, He is called of God. And and these these are important things. So, chapter 6, it tells us that when God made a promise to Abraham, He swore to him, and because there's none greater than God, He swore unto Himself when he made a promise to Abraham, because there's none other greater than God. And it goes on to talk about how it's impossible for God to lie. I'm going somewhere with all this. Chapter 6 ends with Jesus being made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's going on here? It was God's promise from Psalm 110 that there would arise a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's called of God. It's a promise of God that they should have been looking for an high priest that fits Psalm 110. Then in verse 11 here of chapter 7, we begin to get a comparison between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Melchizedek after the similitude, it says, of Melchizedek. 
And so the context leading up to chapter 7, it is foundational for the comparisons which are about to take place in verses 11-28. So really, these first 10 verses are parenthetical, if you will, to further describe Melchizedek and is preparing the reader for the contrast that is about to come. So we have to understand Melchizedek if we're going to understand the contrast between the Levitical priesthood. I hope this is making sense. This is why verse 3 is significant in context. The Levitical priesthood was all about lineage. And and you have to understand that. The, The Levitical priesthood, if you wanted to qualify to be in the Levitical priesthood, you had to be born into it. You were qualified by birth because you were born a Levite. And so you couldn't just say, I volunteer to be a priest. No, you had to be born into it. So, in fact, after the Babylonian captivity, there was a group of of people that called themselves the children of the priest. But since they couldn't prove their priestly lineage back to Aaron, they were disqualified from the priesthood. Ezra 2.62 says, These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, were they as polluted put from the priesthood. Why? They could not trace their descent. And you can read the same thing in Nehemiah 7.64. So in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews here is showing how the Melchizedek priesthood had nothing to do with genealogy. And I believe what the Holy Spirit is doing is reaching back to the scriptural account that we just read in Genesis 14 to highlight the fact of Melchizedek having none of this recorded. We don't find any of this in the Bible, right? We just read it. I mean, there's nothing there that mentions any of this. All verse 3 is telling us is there's no record of Melchizedek's family or his life in the Word of God, or there's no other record for that matter. We know nothing other than what the Bible says. Unlike the patriarchs, nothing is ever said regarding Melchizedek's lineage. But as we've been studying through Genesis, there's a lot of that because we're tracing the line to Christ. But when it comes to Melchizedek, we see nothing about uh, his parents. We aren't told his lineage. We aren't told of his birth or death. We aren't told when he ceased to be a priest of God or that he even had a priestly lineage. In other words, he wasn't born into it necessarily. Now, I'm sure at some point you're putting it together that I do not believe Melchizedek was Christ in the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you my reasons why. For starters, the meaning without father and without mother, it just means to be fatherless and motherless. It's it's akin to when we read how Esther had neither father nor mother because her parents had died. Without descent, it means his descent is unknown or it's one with an unrecorded birth, which is further expressed by the saying, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So not only was the date of his birth unrecorded, but so was the date of his death. And no doubt multitudes have been in that category down through the ages. You can go walk through the cemeteries now, and it wasn't that long ago you read a birth in the 1800s, but you don't, or a death in the 1800s, but you don't see the birth date. It's unknown. <laughs> Nobody cared, amen. When's your birthday? I don't know, in the fall. <laughs> One of the decisive factors for me personally 
is the fact that verse 3 says Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God. Which means Melchizedek resembled the Son of God. So logically, I think you have to ask yourself, why in the world would Christ become a type of Himself? that make sense? Why would the Holy Spirit make a comparison between Christ and Christ? Why would Christ style Himself after Himself? Not to mention, Jesus was not made like unto the Son of God. He is the everlasting Son of God. The end of verse 3 says, Melchizedek abideth a priest continually. Continually doesn't have to mean eternally. I have continually been the pastor since I was voted in. I won't eternally be the pastor. In fact, the same Hebrew word is used again in Hebrews 10 verse 1 where it speaks of sacrifices being offered year by year continually. It doesn't mean they're offered eternally. They're just offered continually. Melchizedek continued without pause. While the demanding labor of the Levitical priesthood is clear from the Old Testament, it was from ages 30 to 50. And so it didn't continue. Melchizedek's priesthood is considered continual as far as what is recorded in Genesis And don't forget, that's what the penman of Hebrews is doing. He's reaching back to the biblical account. But I think a better understanding of the phrase being a priesthood that continues is probably the comparison with Hebrews 7.23, which says, And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So the comparison is this. Because Melchizedek had no recorded death in the Scriptures, he continued a priest. And therefore, it wasn't passed along to another while the Levitical priests did not continue due to death, and therefore their priesthood was always being passed from one generation to the next. For this reason, verse 24, speaking of Jesus, says, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. And what that means is, unchangeable, is it would not change hands. Jesus' priesthood is not going to go to another. Amen. Moving on, verse 4 says, Now consider how great this man was. This isn't the most convincing point. Jesus was also made a man. But I think it can help build the opinion that Melchizedek was just a man. And the fact is, he's mentioned in the past tense. And Jesus is eternal. Verse 6 is another decisive factor for me. It says, But he whose descent is not counted. This means Melchizedek had no traceable or recorded genealogy. Well, what did I just read about the Levitical priesthood? If you could not show your register, they kicked you out of the priesthood because you didn't have a traceable genealogy. That's what this means. He had no pedigree. This is standing in contrast to verse 5, which mentions, which mentions the sons of Levi or those who had to have a traceable uh, genealogy. Now, the reason all this is important in Hebrews is the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is setting the stage to prove that the new covenant's better than the old covenant. In fact, the book of Hebrews is all about how Christ is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's going to establish a better covenant. He's better in every way. And the argument for the superiority of the new covenant is being further made by the priesthood of Christ who is after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is our high priest, but not from the tribe of Levi. Remember, they had to have it traced. 
Something's happening here with this after the order of Melchizedek. We have a high priest that doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. We know he comes from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, the argument is the law has changed. Look at Hebrews 7.12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Hebrews 7.14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Hebrews 7.22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or covenant. And then in chapters 8 through 10, the, the writer of Hebrews is just going to lay out the new covenant and just blast how it's way better than the old covenant. Read it sometimes, and if you don't take a lap, come and see me. And so the case is building as you read through the book of Hebrews. Christ is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. Then Jesus' priesthood is superior to Aaron's priesthood and it keeps building its way to the new covenant to show us how it is better than the old. Now go back to Genesis chapter 14. A couple more thoughts concerning Melchizedek. Notice verse 18 again. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, remember this. God has always had His remnant. Amen. Don't make the mistake of thinking Abram's the only one around that has knowledge of God. Elijah tried that, and he was pretty down in the dumps. And God said, no, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God's always had His remnant. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which most believe became Jerusalem, right? Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2, it says, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is His tabernacle and His dwelling place in Zion. So there's an argument for Salem becoming Jerusalem. This is important. This this idea of, of Melchizedek, listen now, it's important with him being called king of Salem, because if we're going to look at this as a Christophany, as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, this is a problem because he has a geopolitical rule. He is ruling over some part of the earth. No other Christophanies do that. At no point does it say he was king over this or king over that. This is clear he was king of Salem. You can spiritualize it if you want. I'm still your friend, but I'm just telling you. And so, anyway, he's a king over, an earth, over part of the earth here. And no other Christophany does that. Next, those who say Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, they're trying to make a connection between the bread and the wine to when Jesus instituted the Lord's Memorial Supper and replaced the Passover. But this isn't the case. There is nothing here to suggest that the bread and wine have anything to do with the sacrifice. In fact, all that's happening here, there's nothing mystical at all. You say, what's happening? Melchizedek's bringing bread and wine. He's being a blessing to those who have just returned from battle. And so it's just a refreshment, if you will. Um, he's being good to them. Maybe I'll put it that way. And if you only get one thing, all right, forget all the argument. <laughs> if you only get one thing concerning Melchizedek, please get this. Melchizedek was a king-priest. And Christ is both our king and priest. Therefore, Christ is after the order of Melchizedek. Why didn't you just say that to begin with? I don't know. 
So that's my opinion on the identity of Melchizedek. I believe he was just a man, not the pre-incarnate Christ, for all the reasons I cited. If you believe Melchizedek was Christ, I'm still your friend. It doesn't change anything. So there's really no sense in getting sideways with me. Or as Barney would say to Andy, stop being obtuse. I love what Matthew Henry wrote about this. He wrote this quote, If men will not be satisfied with what is revealed, they must rove about in the dark in endless conjectures. End quote. And there's enough of that going on already with the Scriptures. All right, I got four minutes to get to something profitable. Because I spent so much time on Melchizedek, we now have to move quickly. We find three times in three verses the phrase, the most high God, and then it shows up again in verse 22. So four times here in this passage. And the most high God is a phrase which means God is the supreme God. It, he is the God of gods, if you will. Just like Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The most high God is, is called the possessor of heaven and earth. In verse 19 there. And God certainly is our creator. Amen. He is sovereign over all His creation. In verse 20, the Most High God is the one who delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. And God deserves all the glory for any victories we may receive that we are partakers of. And notice how Melchizedek recognizes Abram as being of the Most High God. Hey, this is good stuff here. All of God's children are of the Most High God. Whoop! Why is this so exciting to you? Well... If we belong to the Most High God, the Creator, the Sovereign God, the Deliverer, then why should we ever fear or worry? I'm preaching to myself. Do we really understand that we are in the hand of the God of gods, the Most High God? We are His. Do we understand that? Next we see Melchizedek blesses Abram and he blesses God. Application to us. We have been made priest unto God. That's what the Bible says. We are made priest unto God. We are a holy and a royal priesthood, Peter writes. And so we ought to do likewise that we see Melchizedek doing here. We should be a blessing to others and a blessing to God. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And then we have this statement at the end of verse 20, which is going to make some of you nervous, and it leads to more controversy. And he gave him tithes of all. Ugh. No, not money. This is Abram giving tithes to Melchizedek, is what it is saying here. But don't worry, I spent so much time on Melchizedek, we don't have time now to go through tithing. Now, I don't think Abram gave a tenth of the spoils from the possessions of the people that he rescued because of what follows. But I think it's him giving a tenth of the spoils that he took from the enemy, being the conqueror. And as Hebrews 7, 4 said, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now, for those who may not know, the, the tithe, tithe means a tenth. Ten percent. <laughs> it's getting more tense, amen. Um, and so Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils, and the question arises, is the tithe for today since Abram tithed before the law required it? 
a side note for those, who, uh, those of you who may be against tithing but are for Melchizedek being Christ, you can't explain it away now. Now, here's some things to sort through, because I like stirring up trouble, I guess. Abram is tithing off the spoils, not his income. Abram is never commanded to do this, but he does it voluntarily. This is only recorded once. There's no indication that Abram tithed off of the increase he got from the Pharaoh from the end of chapter 12. Maybe he did, but it's not recorded. Also, something to consider is that tithing is never mentioned after the new covenant was established except in Hebrews chapter 7, which is in reference to this account. Here's what we know for sure from the New Testament. Acts 20.35 says it's more blessed to give than to receive. It also says this, and this ought to settle it to you. But this I say, this is 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now, we are blessed when we give, but I don't think we ought to give solely for the fact that we are looking for a blessing. That makes sense? But we give because we have been blessed. I can say without any hesitation that you should give to God through your local church. I'm going to say that again because I want you to get it. I believe if you're a member here, your giving ought to go through your local church. I believe that. Um, I better stop. And you ought, this is what I know for sure. You ought to give bountifully, purposefully, cheerfully, faithfully, and at times even sacrificially. As Jesus praised the poor widow who cast in her two mites and said she has given all of her living. And the others were just giving out of their abundance. I'm personally glad we've moved away from passing the plate. I like, I like having the box in the back. We are not taking up an offering. I'm not taking your money. You are giving it. We are receiving it. I think when we pass the plate, it can lead to people giving grudgingly or of necessity. Well, everybody's watching. And then your change hits the plate. You know, I'm only All right. I'm going to get in trouble for this is over. Now, with all this being said, okay, I'm going to give you my personal opinion for what it is worth. I believe in the tithe. But I believe it is a starting point, not the goal. I think there's enough verses in the Bible, albeit under the Old Covenant, that talk about the blessings of giving. A tithe. And by the way, if you study the Old Testament, it was way more than just a tithe. You had first fruits. You had all kinds of stuff. You had offerings. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offend some of you if I, if I keep going. I think it's a good starting point. And you say, but we're under grace. Yeah, I know. And Jesus said if someone compels you to go one mile, go twain. So if you're compelled to give 10 under the law, give 20 under the grace. Oh, boom! Just got real up in here. Amen. There's, like I said, there's plenty of verses that uh, establish the principle of tithing as a good practice. Um, I'm for it. I'm pro-tithing. I think that ought to be your starting point. And uh, I think you should grow to the point where you learn to give above a tenth. You say, well, you just want a pay raise. Nope. That's not it at all. 
Um, but I have come to learn since October of 1998 when my wife and I first wrote that first tithe check. And we put it in, and we didn't know what in the world we were doing. I can tell you this, God's met every one of our needs. And you say, well, is it just because you give? I don't know. I'm just telling you. God's met every one of our needs. And so I know that uh, it's a good thing to do. It blesses God. It'll bless you. Um, here's, here's what I ask you to do, whether you agree, th- agree with the tithe or not. Ask yourself this. Do you have a clear conscience with God as it relates to your financial giving? Do you have a clear conscience? We're going to finish this chapter. Amen. Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to go fast. You owe me that much. I didn't hardly talk about giving at all. (laughs) Amen. Okay, I won't stop. If God doesn't have your wallet, He doesn't have your heart. For where your heart is, there will will your treasure be also. And so people come in. I've got all this. Da, 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 da. Are you doing the five to thrive? Well, I can't afford to give. You can't afford not to. When you withhold from God, you're withholding your heart to Him. And I could go on about the church and prayer and the Bible and all the rest. Okay. Am I good now, Brother Mahler? You're a large reason for this next point. Um, we see in, no, it's a good thing, trust me. We see in verse 21, the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Now, as a pastor, that sounds like a great deal. Take the people, give me the money, I'm good. Ha <laughs> ha, amen. And there's churches today, they got this thing going on where, you know, he's the teaching pastor. That's what I want, amen. I'll just do the teaching. Pastor DeGarmo can do all the other stuff. All right, well, maybe this is only for me and Pastor DeGarmo. (laughs) Brother Long, (laughs) who else is in the ministry? Amen. Don't want to offend anybody. Abram replies, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anner, Eskol, Mamre, let them take their portion. Abram has refused to take anything from them because he didn't want to be accused of the world being enriched through conquest. This is a big deal today. I don't know if you're tuned into the news, but there's all this talk about Christian nationalism. I'm not going to go there, so you're okay. But just something here. Abram's like, I'm not going to be accused of being enriched because of my conquest. Abram wanted God to have all the glory for his riches because remember, Abram is under the promise of God in Genesis 12 where God said, I will bless you. Abram knew his blessing was to come from God. And and Abram had the, the, the mindset that a good name is rather to be chosen than silver and gold. Amen. The only thing which which Abram took was that which the soldiers ate. That sounds pretty fair. And he says to the king of Sodom, while I'm not taking anything, I can't speak for Anner, Eskol, and Mamre. If they want to take something, that's their business, and they can make up their mind. But as for me, my mind was already made up. 
Abram is practicing, I'm going to get to the Jim Mahler point in just a minute, but Abram is practicing separation. And we should keep a safe distance from those who do not align with God's Word. I didn't say be ugly. I didn't say to avoid. We have to reach them for Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about not yoking up with the world. Not yoking up with the peddlers of false doctrine. Both individually and corporately. As a church body, we are not to yoke up with unbelievers. We are not to yoke up with false religions. I cannot lock arms with the Catholics, the Mormons, the JWs, the Seventh-day Adventists. I can't. It is wrong doctrinally. And I've already lifted up my hand to the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and say, but this church is going to follow your word. And so I can't yoke up with that. I'll witness to them. I'll be polite to them. I'll even offer them a glass of water if they come to the door. Well, probably not because I'm not very hospitable, Pastor DeGarmo. Thanks for that Sunday school lesson. We are not to align ourselves with groups who don't hold to the Scriptures. For example, we had, Pastor DeGarmo will remember this. I think he'll back me up on this unless I'm exaggerating evangelically. Anyway, we had a church here in town asking if they could use our facility in between our services. They wanted to rent it with maybe the hopes of buying it one day. And I explained, well, I need to know your doctrinal position first. I knew we wouldn't line up when I made that statement. I politely explained how I wouldn't have a clear conscience allowing any group to use our facility who would come in after our service and preach differently than what we believe the Word of God to teach. To me, that's a major problem. Like Paul wrote, it is like a trumpet giving an uncertain sound. One of the men said something to this effect, I'm sure that's not going to be a problem. And I was doing what you're doing. I knew their group well enough that I asked, well, do you allow women pastors? And he said, yes. <laughs> I let him know that that would be enough to say, no, you cannot use our facility. It contradicts the Bible. I haven't heard anything back since that conversation. Now, what's funny, and Pastor Gukarma will remember this, I may have inadvertently caused a rift in their church. There was two men. One said, yeah, we believe in that. And the pastor who was there said, I don't believe in that. (laughs) You gentlemen have a great day. (laughs) I understand this facility is only a work of men's hands. It's really nothing when we're not here. I understand that. We are the body of Christ, the, the people. I get that. We are the church. But this is where we meet around God's Word. And for that reason, I believe it is a set-aside place. It is a holy place. And so I can, in good conscience, allow anyone or any group to compromise the sanctity of where we meet. And I hope you understand and agree with that. But that aside, here's what I want to leave you with today. And I've heard Brother Mahler say this many a time. Something to this effect, brother. Abram developed his conviction before the conflict ever started. Abram had already purposed in his heart that he would take nothing for himself. We need to develop our convictions 
our standards, our preferences, before we are ever met with the temptation. Once the battle begins and we are in the heat of battle, we can become tempted to go in all kinds of different directions if we don't know where we stand. For example, before someone offers you sin, you should already have in your heart uh, made, made up your mind that God is right. Before you are tempted to fornicate, you should already agree with God on what is right. Before you are tempted with bad friendships, you should already know what is right before God. Before you get married, you should already align yourself with God's Word. Before you take that job, you should know what your boundaries are. Before the temptations ever come your way, and believe me, they will, you should already have decided with God what He would have you to do. Abram had already lifted up his hand unto the Lord God, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that he would take nothing from the king of Sodom before he even went to battle. And when the temptation came, because it did came, it did come, when the temptation came to Abram from the king of Sodom, you keep the possessions, just give me the people, Abram could already say, I already know my answer. I am not taking anything from you. Some of you may be in a heated battle right now. And you're struggling in your heart what the right course of action is to be. And if that's you, I can almost guarantee you it's because you did not settle it in your heart ahead of time that you were going to agree with God and His Word before the battle ever started. And now you are wrestling with the truth of God's Word. Maybe some here today need to align themselves with God. Develop godly convictions and guardrails in your life. Hey, this is turning into a pretty good New Year's message. Boy, Ken was right on that. Yeah, yeah. Can I use that tomorrow? Amen. That's good. Maybe some are being tempted to do wrong and you need to retreat to God's Word because you are overwhelmed in the battle and you're wandering aimlessly about to fall off the cliff. Why not make your mind up today that you're going to do things God's way? How about today you lift up your hand unto the Lord God, the Most High God, in purpose to live God's way according to God's Word. And you'll already have your answer when the battle starts. Let's pray.